2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, it says this. Paul is writing, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so before we look at this verse in detail, let's pray together and ask the Lord to grant us his wisdom as we do so. Won't you bow with me? Won't you take some time to pray for yourself that your heart will be open to the truths of God's word? And you also pray for me that I'd faithfully proclaim those truths and also pray for someone next to you that their hearts too would be receptive. Father, you say in your word, through James, that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so this morning we do ask for wisdom now as we search your scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this verse that we have before us, it's only a handful of words, um, But these handful of words, they span all eternity past to the present and into all eternity future. It's it's not a complicated verse. It's a fairly simple verse. I'm sure most children would understand it there. There's no difficult words. There's no confusing words. There's no really even theological words in there, in that verse. And they can be easily grasped, straightforward to its meaning, But what it actually means is unfathomable. That's a great word, if I could say it properly. It is immense to what it actually means. And it will take us a few seconds to read it, but it will take us all eternity to truly understand and grasp the meaning of this verse and all that it involves. So let me just paint the context for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is in a very practical section of his writings. He's explaining to the believers there and thanking the Macedonian church for their gifts to serve fellow brothers and sisters and giving of themselves. And then he injects this theological gem, as Paul does, right in the middle of this very practical section. And it's a, it's a blazing diamond that shines forth among all the other gems around it. And Paul commends these three churches in Macedonia, the churches of Philippi, where he writes to the Philippians, the churches of Thessalonica, where he writes the books of Thessalonians, and then the church in Berea, who he commends and says, be like them, and they search out the scriptures. And so he writes to them, writes about them giving out of grace. In fact, in this passage, there's a couple of times that that word is used, grace, to meet the fellow believers' needs and their circumstances. But Paul then does what he loves to do. He takes it to a greater level. And he says, that's a great example, you Macedonians. But I want to show you an even bigger and grander example. And his mind immediately goes to the greatest display of grace and the greatest display of love and the greatest gift and sacrifice. And that is, has to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you talk about gracious giving love... You have to talk about Christ. There's no better example than Jesus Christ as that. And so Macedonian love was one thing, but Paul goes way beyond them here to the most generous and the most gracious and the most momentous giver of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, this is the greatest love 
because it is the greatest gift. And that gift is himself. And so Christ is our supreme example because this, this type of giving that he did, it's intrinsic to the Trinity. The Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are giving. We've heard and we know that verse, it's better to give than to receive. And God by his triune nature is a giving God. There was a giving of love and fellowship in the Trinity for all eternity before creation. There was a giving of themselves for each other before Adam and Eve breathed their first breath. There was this giving eternally rich God, and He overflows through Jesus Christ to mankind. See, in worldly standards, we have categories. We sort of say, okay, so if the wealthy give to the poor, that's pretty noble. If the poor give to the poorer, that's probably more noble. But what if the wealthy became poor so that the poor would become rich? Well, that's insane. We, we, we don't have that. Nobody gives to that extent. We love those stories, the, the rags to riches stories. We have them in movies, Cinderella, Annie. We love those stories. And we see examples of wealthy helping the poor and poor helping the poorer. But let's take time now to examine the magnitude of this verse and the greater reality that God gives to us here. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, captures this well. He's so succinct in how he does it. He says, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's what he wrote. So let's look at verse 9. It says, Therefore you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This grace, this unmerited love, this undeserved favor that God gives to us. And this word know is, is wonderful. It's not just knowing about. The word actually means that you know the grace giver. You have a relationship with the grace giver. And it's grace from who? Well, it says from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses his full title and name here. Lord, he is God. He is deity. He is the master. And we get our relationship there. We are his servants. And then he says, Jesus, that's his human name, Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. Old Testament, Joshua, he uses that. And then he uses Christ. It's not his last name, okay? Christ is the anointed. It's Greek for the anointed of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So he gives them his full title and his full name. And Jesus is entitled to this full name because of who he is. He is and always has been and always will be God. And he's also entitled to it because of his perfect work as a man and being obedient to his father and coming to earth to eventually die for us sinners. And so the handouts you have there have a title. And I apologize, I changed the title from Thursday when Kathy printed it to today. Really, you scratch it out and say the unexpected gift. That's really what it is. The points are still the same, and we're going to get them from the three short phrases, from riches to rags for your riches. So that's the title and the, I don't know, tagline, if you want to call it that. So the first point, from riches, speaking of Christ, though he was rich, that's what it says there. What are we talking about? 
Well, we aren't talking about material wealth. That's definitely not what we're talking about here. But in trying to show you the richness of Christ, I'm going to draw a comparison and an analogy for you to earthly wealth. Now, in today's world, we have several categories for wealth. We have the average rich. So they're more money than most people, but not incredibly wealthy. You have the medium rich. Those are your basic millionaires. Then the super rich, those are the people on lifestyles of the rich and famous. And then finally, you get the incredibly rich. Those are your Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Fortune 500, richest people in the world type of people, your basic billionaires. And I thought, well, how do we know the difference between these people? So let's put it this way. The average rich may fly first class. The medium rich, they'll charter their own jet. The super rich, well, they own their own jet. And the incredibly rich... Well, they own the airline. But you know what? Jesus, he owns the skies. That's the richness of Christ. He is beyond all our comprehension. He is all richness. And the Bible says it here. He was rich. And it's speaking here of what he had before he left heaven to come to earth in his eternal glory. See, what he had in the pre-existence with his father He must be God because he has to have all of those riches. He is a member of the Trinity. He wasn't a creature that was made by God. He wasn't a created being. You see, some false Christian cults would say, well, he's an angel. Well, that would be somebody created. He's a a demigod, kind of half God, half man, or a sub-God. And some have even said he's, he's just a human. Whatever it is that they've said there, if he is anything but the eternal God, he would be created and he would not have all richness and he would not be able to save mankind. So he was rich. The Bible all over the place talks about the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. When we see Christ, Dan even prayed it. We see Christ, we see the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says that. We saw in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, months ago, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Paul says to the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For by Him, talking of Christ, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him, and are created for Him. He is before all things, and all things hold together in Him. Paul speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. says this, Now to the King, Jesus, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In the new year, Dave's going to be teaching through the Gospel of John. I'm just going to highlight just a couple passages about the glory of Jesus Christ. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus Christ, was God. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we know that statement that God in the burning bush said to Moses, I am. Jesus is saying the same thing. John 10, 30. The Father and I are one. We are together. And John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Hear it? With the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
So he was rich. The Bible's not unclear about this. It's not vague about it. But suppose you think about it this way. Take the ten richest men who ever lived. Take the ten most powerful rulers who ever ruled. The ten wisest people that have ever pondered life's questions. Throw in the ten mightiest generals that ever went into battle. The ten strongest athletes in every sport. The ten most mesmerizing orators or people who speak. The ten greatest political leaders. That sounds like an oxymoron. And then add in ten, any other ten great men or women left on earth. And then you take all of their accumulated wealth, power, influence, skill, genius, wisdom, insight, whatever it is, ability. And that sum, whatever that sum is, doesn't even come close to how rich Jesus is. Infinitely more than that. No man, no collection of humankind would ever come close. He was rich. You see, he didn't have to leave heaven to come and find riches here on earth. The whole universe was at his disposal. He wasn't looking for riches. I love Charles Spurgeon. He just has a way to capture it such vividly, in such a vivid way. He says this, Behold him, speaking of Christ, sitting upon his throne and declaring his all-sufficiency. If I were hungry, Jesus speaking, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the cattle on a thousand hills, they are mine. Mine are the hidden treasures of gold. Mine are the pearls that the divers cannot even reach. Mine is every precious thing that the earth has seen. I can stretch out my scepter from the east to the west, and all of it is mine. In this whole world and in yonder worlds that are glittering in far-off space, all are mine in the illimitable expanse of unmeasured space, filled with these worlds that I have made, they are all mine. Fly upward, and you cannot summit the glory of my dominion. Fly downward, and you cannot go to the inner depths of my sway. For from the highest throne in glory to the lowest pit of hell, all, all is mine without exception. That's how rich Christ is. He is as rich as God is rich because He is also the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity. But not only does He own all things, our Savior, He owns all power and all authority and glory and honor and sovereignty and majesty. And He owns all things that were created. And the wealth of our Lord Jesus is far beyond our comprehension. It is boundless. It is infinite. Listen carefully to this statement. It knocked me. God is not more and cannot promise more or do more than Christ is said to be and to promise and to do. He does it all in Christ. And I love how God ties everything together. The overarching theme of all of this divine richness is what we were prayed today, is His divine Love. There was an infinite and there was a perfect love between the Trinity, as I said beforehand. And out of that love that the Trinity had, giving to us through Jesus Christ, it flows this full and this rich love to sinners like us. So how does it flow to us? Well, that leads us to our second point this morning. To rags. 
verse continues and says, Yet for your sake he became poor. For your sake. For my sake. Our sake. Not for his sake. Notice it says there that he became poor. Wasn't he was made poor? He did it voluntarily. It was his choice to become poor. And so what does it mean to become poor? And unfortunately, throughout history, this has been misunderstood. Some have taken, as we know today, the vow of poverty. Christ was poor, so I'm going to be poor. The vow of poverty. Well, that's not what he's talking about here at all. This poverty that he became poor refers to what he did coming to earth, not his financial situation while on earth. It's not that at all. It refers to this infinite distance about being that rich God that we have seen to becoming a man in the poverty of humanity. This passage says nothing about Jesus economically. Jesus didn't make us economically rich by becoming economically poor. That's not it. It isn't even that he had to live in a lowly financial situation to save us. But it's rather talking about that he became poor as in God became man. There is no salvation through economic sacrifices of Jesus. We aren't talking about that. So don't go into the material realm. It's not what he is saying here. What does it mean that he became poor? Just think about it. There's Jesus. He made water. He made H. Two hydrogen molecules to combine with one oxygen molecule, and he made water. And yet on earth he sits by a well with a Samaritan woman and asks her for a drink. That's what it means. Think about Christ. He was served by angels. Yet, one night he grabs a towel, wraps it around himself, and goes and washes his disciples' filthy feet and serves them. That's what it means that God became poor. Think about it as his crucifixion. These crowds, that Christ had formed their very lips in the, mouth, in the wombs of their moms, those very lips now spat on him. Those eyes that he had filled with vision, they now looked on him with scorn and disdain. The tongues that he gave them to speak, They now hissed and blasphemed him, the rich God becoming poor as a man. Earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, Paul reflects the similar attitude in a very, very small way. And he says, as poor, talking of himself, making many rich. He's again not talking about him financially. What Paul is saying is that he has spiritually given up rights, given up privileges, so that he could preach the word, so that people would become rich in salvation. That's what Paul is saying here. And so when Jesus took on the poverty of humanity, he was born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. He was made in the likeness of human flesh. That's where we get the word incarnation from. Carne means flesh, in fleshment. That's what Romans 8.3 says. He was made a little lower than the angels, Hebrews 2, verse 7. And so what he did is he laid aside, when he came to earth, he laid aside all of the the prerogatives that he had as God. He laid those aside. And he left being face to face with his Father so that he could come down 
and take on human form. There's no greater passage that sums this up is Philippians chapter 2, talking about the humility of Christ coming to it. It says, Who, speaking of Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Remember, he was with the Trinity. He was in perfect equality with God, and he didn't hold on to that so that he could come to earth. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being in the likeness of men. That's the poverty. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he came all the way down to humanity to suffer for us. And Hebrews tells us that he was like us in every way. He was tempted like us, but he did not sin. And he went all the way to the point of death. He became poor for us. His richness was the glory that he had with his father. And his richness was being equal with God, the Father. And I love how the old creed says, He was God of very God. That's who he was. And he came down to it. Now, let me be clear. He didn't forget his Godness and then become a man. No, he was fully God. He didn't subtract his Godness. When he came down to earth, he added humanity to himself. He's the only 100% God, 100% man. And we see this now, that we have the riches of Christ coming to earth. We see the rags of the poverty of humanity. And then thirdly, why? The purpose. Well, it's for your riches. The verse continues, that you through his poverty might become rich. It says there, that you. And it links through the rest of the verse there, linking back to the first part that says, for you know, and then the next little bit, for your sake. And then it comes here, that you, that you, Mr. Keen, would be rich. Or Lynn. Or that Lynn. <laughs> but two. And even up on the shelf. <laughs> For you, he came so that you may be rich. I love it when we have communion. And we often use that phrase, oh, this is the body of the Lord Jesus broken. This is the blood of the Lord Jesus shed, a picture which is for you, mankind. So why did he have to become a man? Why did he have to become a man for our riches? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul quotes a prophecy about the Messiah, way back in Psalm 68 verse 18. Paul quotes this prophetic psalm regarding Christ. And the psalm says this, 68 verse 18. When he ascended on high... He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So Paul in Ephesians is alluding to that psalm and saying, when Christ died for us and now is ascended to the right hand of his father, this is what has happened. And Paul knew the culture. The culture in that day was when a commander, a general in an army fought a battle and won, what would happen is is that general would ascend the hill. And all the people he had freed from those evil oppressors, all the spoils of that battle, they would go up to the hill. He would ascend the hill as the conquering victor, releasing all of those captives, and he would divide out all the gifts to the people. And so Paul is tying into this and saying, when Christ died and rose again as now at the right hand of the Father, he has ascended, he has released those captives of the enemy. And the only way that Christ could have done that 
is that he first went down into the battle. He had to go into the battle before he could stand up on high and proclaim that those captives had been released. We are all captives. When we come into this world, you've heard of the saying, guilt by association. So if I'm hanging around with bad people, like Bill, no, I'm just kidding. I'm hanging around with some bad people, then if they do a crime, what happens? I might get linked in there. My guilt by association. Do you know we are all guilty by association? Because in Adam, all die. But secondly, we are also guilt because we commit those sin crimes against God. We commit them. And so when we see a Savior that has been given to us, it is indeed, like the angel said, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. So no longer are we not guilt by association of the sin, but we have grace by imputation. And that word means this. It's like if I had a, a soiled t-shirt on that was red, deep red, scarlet. The Bible says our sins are like scarlet. It doesn't say they're black. It says they're like scarlet. And the reason the Bible says it's like scarlet is because they used to double dye scarlet. And you could never get that color out of the, the material again. And so if I had that picture, Christ came. And what happened is he took my, as a picture, that sin, filthy garment of my sin and put it on and gave me his garment of righteousness. He imputed his righteousness to me and he took on my sin. So we have now, not guilt by association, but we have grace by imputation. It is a great exchange. And so this morning, if you are a child of God, you are rich. Materially rich? No. Okay. Spiritually rich? Yes. Eternally rich? Yes. Well, with what kind of riches, everybody's asking. Remember the story I told in the beginning? We are rich because we have Him. We have Christ. And it is in Christ that we have all the riches of God that flow to us because we have Christ. Paul says it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may know and have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we have Christ, the greatest riches of all. And yes, daily here on earth, we have His care for us. We have His protection for us. We have a security of salvation. We have the promises of God. We have the blessings of serving one another. That's the context Paul is in. He's saying that these churches gave of themselves to the people. Those are blessings that flow out from God through Christ to us and to each other. Here and now. But also one day in heaven, when we realize Christ's riches fully, those same riches that he possessed with God before he came to earth that he now has because he is ascended on high. Rich in salvation. We are rich in forgiveness. We are rich in adoption into his family and love and joy. We have peace with God. We are rich. In fact, we are so rich that the Bible says we are joint heirs with Christ before the Lord. But before any of this can apply to you, you need to see that your situation, I don't know everybody here today, 
It might be friends and family here, but we need to see that the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are, we are dead. We are spiritually dead and impoverished in our sin. And Jesus says that there is hope. There is a richness in himself to trust in him. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is speaking the Sermon on the Mountain, and he's talking to them, he gets to the passage of the Beatitudes, blessed are they, blessed are they, and one of them is, blessed are the poor. Those are the people who see themselves, I am a spiritual beggar, I need Christ. Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. They will get the riches of Christ because they know they are poor, and they are trusting in Christ and His riches, and He is the only way of salvation. And when you have done that, you are rich because the very life of God dwells in us. We live, and yet Christ lives in us, and we reflect His glory. So we must never forget these rich promises, especially at Christmas. Especially at Christmas, when we see a manger just in front of us here. That salvation has been born. The rich God has come down to be poor, to make us rich in Him. By giving himself to us. And so a few thoughts that follow on from this verse here. If he has accomplished so much richness for us. When he accomplished that, he accomplished it when he was in poverty, humanity here on earth. Now that Christ is exalted, will he not keep all of that secure? Can you see the lesser to the greater? If he could do all of that while he was poor on earth, how much more will he do when he's exalted to the right hand of God? If he could accomplish all of that riches for us with nails in his hands, how much more when he rules with a scepter as he does right now will he do for us? And as we come to a close today, I need to ask today, have you been made rich in Christ? through his poverty, or are you still maybe trusting in your own works and are spiritually poor? Then the only thing is to run to Christ, to run to him in repentance and to trust him as your savior. But for many of the friends that I do know here, you are rich in Christ, you are a child of God. There's two additional things from this text. Firstly, to know that you are rich in him. Too often, maybe like me, Tempted to think, oh, they've got this, or look how gifted that person is, and I don't have all of these things, and we get discontent. We need to know that when we have Christ, that's all we need. Christ is enough, sufficient in Christ. Child of God, you have Christ, you are rich. He is all you need. And then, with Christ's greater example for us, the Macedonians' lesser example to give of ourselves to one another to our fellow brothers and sisters here at church, beyond serving once a month on a roster, meals, have people over, give of yourselves to one another. Show that. So as we look at this, may your Christmas be filled to see the simple verse, to see Christ as rich coming to save us because he came to human and be a human for our riches. Won't you pray with me? Father God, we, we ask now by your Spirit that you would oppress upon us and our hearts the magnitude of these truths. 
and that by gazing at these scriptural gems that we see, would you please make our hearts devout and would you make our spirits loving. Jesus, we thank you for leaving your throne room in heaven and leaving your kingly crown and to come to earth to die and to rescue us sinners. Father God, this morning your word resounds with the magnitude of the gospel in that short verse. Help us to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs)